thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery is questions. Research. Technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is the Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to the Naked Scientist. This is the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine. I'm Chris Smith. And I'm Julia Ravy. This week. And so this is really a warning to us that the battle for water resources will quickly lead to uh, political and societal instability. We see how future droughts in the UK will be affected by climate change, see how we could best capture our rainfall and look at technology's potential at increasing the availability of our water. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. The summer of 2022 has been one of a countrywide drought. July was the driest in over 20 years and now 10 of the Environment Agency's 14 regional divisions are officially in drought. It's only Cumbria and Lancashire that are considered to have normal water resource status. Everybody's affected. Lawns and playing fields have gone brown, trees are dead, hose pipes are banned in some places and for some it's also been very economically painful. Major in Temple and we've been farming for three generations in the east of England and we have very dry soil at the moment. We should be seeing beans at this time of the year three foot high ready for harvest. We've now got sort of plants at half that size and very few pods. The whole of the field looks quite sparse um, and I've heard neighbours say that even with reasonably looking crops they haven't yielded very well this year. If I stepped into this field and I didn't know what should be here, I would assume you just had left this field fallow. There's bare soil everywhere with huge cracks, and what plants there are here look very scrubby and half-dead, and, and there are very few pods on them. No, that's absolutely correct, yeah, and we're just going to take what we can, and that will be it, really, for the year. The only upside is that beans, being leguminous, have put some nitrogen back in the soil, which, at the extortionate price it is at the moment, is probably not a bad thing, but that wasn't the aim. The aim was to have a decent crop. So, yeah, it's been a struggle this year. Is it literally hanging in the balance whether this is even worth harvesting? Yeah, it's worth putting the combine over it, but only really to get what we can and clear it for next year. Break even? If we're lucky. Really? Very, yeah, it's going to be very marginal because of the cost of seed and cultivations and I, I very much doubt if we'll get our money back on on that so yeah seen it like this before no not quite as bad as this and i suppose there's a double whammy because that ground is like concrete and trying to pull any kind of implement through that immediately your costs are going to burn a lot more fuel yeah. and you're going to burn your tires out yeah, faster absolutely. and also your wearing parts this soil as hard as it is yeah as you say it's going to be more expensive And of course, if the costs of production are rising and there are lower yields as well, that means that we will all be paying a lot more for our food next year. And 
the even more sombre message is that climate change is going to stretch these extremes yet further. So will, as some are speculating, water be the cause of the next world war? Well, this week we're going to look into where our water comes from and how modern technology might be able to help us to better conserve this increasingly precious resource so we can be more prepared for future dry periods. First, let's find out where the water we use on a daily basis comes from. Michael Mann is from the University of Pennsylvania and author of The New Climate War. He told me what shifting patterns in rainfall will do to water availability in the UK and worldwide. Yeah, so in in a place like uh, the UK, uh, much of uh, the water comes in the form of precipitation and stream flow, rivers and streams that provide some uh, persistence uh, to the sort of the water resources that are available. Uh, In a large number of uh, regions around the world, uh, I believe it's as much as 25% of the the world's population gets its uh, drinking water primarily from glacial melt. And so this is one of the concerns as we lose glaciers around the world, we're losing that important source of water. And that's true certainly for for parts of Europe, but uh, for the UK, uh, again, much of that water um, comes from the basic hydrological cycle where, you know, you've got the uh, ocean, uh, the Atlantic Ocean to your west um, and moisture evaporates off the ocean and then precipitates falls in the form of liquid water. Or in the winter, uh, you get a little bit of that in, in uh, London and, and, and much more in the northern parts of uh, the UK in, in the form of snow. With this rainwater, how do we capture it so we can then drink it? So there are various uh, ways of storing water. Glaciers are a very important natural water storage device, but there's uh, groundwater as well, uh, aquifers. One of the problems is that uh, these are not necessarily renewable uh, water resources, at least on sort of the timescales of importance to us. So as we continue to tap these uh, aquifers, we're depleting this longer term source and eventually that will run out. So there's always a a bit of a problem when we run into a deficit, when we're losing more water through evaporation, especially in the summer, than we're gaining in the form of precipitation, primarily in winter. If that balance goes negative and we uh, have to rely on tapping into aquifers, for example, uh, groundwater, for example, then that that poses a, a long-term, you know, a long-term exposure to a very large population. So we're seeing right now the impacts of climate change really on our water supply. And, you know, as the saying goes, it's hard to predict the weather. But with rainfall, do you know, if we look ahead to the future, how that is going to change because of climate change and the trajectory that we're currently on? Yeah. And so, you know, we see more extremes uh, at both ends of the scale, worse droughts um, and and worse flooding events. And certainly we've seen that in the UK. We've seen that in Europe. We've seen that here in the United States. So that's one of the attributes of climate change. But then there are also the longer term average shifts. And uh, we do actually expect to see more rainfall in the winter in parts of Europe and substantial parts of Europe. Uh, because uh, essentially, you know, the atmosphere is warmer. Um, when you get those winter storms, uh, they're going to produce more rainfall, or in some cases, uh, some cases, snowfall. So, over a large part of uh, Europe, and certainly northern Europe, um, uh, we expect to see increased winter rainfall. But here's the rub: we expect to see even larger losses 
of water through evaporation in the summer. And so while we might see an overall increase in precipitation, especially in winter, that may be sort of outpaced by an increase in water loss through evaporation. And so you get worse drought, even though you might expect to see higher rainfall amounts in the winters. Is there a way then that we can take advantage of the higher rainfall that we potentially have in the winter by storing more rainwater? Are there ways that we can capture more of this rainwater when we're having it and we're having a lot of it? So then in the summer, when the drought comes around, we're a bit more prepared. There's a lot that we can do in the way of adaptation. Um, That is to say, uh, we change our way of doing things. We're more efficient in our use of water. We store the water when there's excess water. Um, Lots of things that we can do to try to limit our exposure to the impacts of climate change. And so adaptation is really important. But if we allow climate change to proceed, if we allow the planet to continue to warm up and these effects to continue to get worse, we may soon exceed our capacity to adapt to these changes. And uh, that's particularly true when it comes to perhaps the most vital resource um, that we you know, uh, that we rely upon um, as as uh, as human beings, uh, water resources. 10, 20 years down the line, water is going to be as precious as gold. If we keep going the way we're going, we're just not going to have water on tap, pardon the pun, like we do now. That's right. And we can see historical analogs for that. Um, warnings uh, from history, uh, much of the strife in the Middle East, in the Near East, ultimately has been driven by a long-term shift in the climate towards drier conditions. In Syria, the Syrian uprising, the Syrian spring, was driven, in fact, by, in large part, a migration of rural farmers um, uh, who could no longer uh, sort of make a go of of subsistence farming because of what was, you know, and continues to be the worst drought in more than uh, 900 years at least. And so this is really a warning to us that the battle for water resources will quickly lead to uh, political and societal instability if we, again, don't mitigate by reducing carbon emissions and, and, and stopping the continuation of the warming and put in place adaptive measures to deal with those changes that are now baked in that we can no longer avoid. That was Michael Mann with an outline of how water distribution is set to change and the potential turbulence that those shifts could cause. Poignant stuff, isn't it? With more extreme weather predicted to happen more often because of climate change, what can we do to be better prepared for dry summers? Well, perhaps the most simple strategy is to collect and to store more of the water that comes down in winter and find better ways to use what we call grey wastewater, which at the moment quite literally goes straight down the drain. This is the concept that's known as circular water storage, and some countries are actually already well ahead on this curve. Jan Hoffman is at the University of Bath, and he's looking at the circular water economy across Europe. Can you, first of all, explain to us, Jan, what a circular water economy means in practical terms? Yeah, circular economy in practical terms means that you are actually storing water uh, and reusing it. And um, as you say, there are countries in Europe where this is uh, already common practice or done in a structural way. For instance, in Flanders, 
new homes have to install rainwater tanks for a volume of 5,000 liters, which can be used for toilet flushing, washing machines, uh, watering the garden. But we're also working in a, in a large uh, European project where we are running uh, demonstration projects on, on full scale in the Netherlands, uh, in Germany, in Sweden, but also in Spain and Greece, where we can really demonstrate these, uh, these circular uh, water technologies in, in, in practice. I suppose one of the big challenges, though, is that new builds are all very well and it's important that, that something is happening. But that's not where most of the housing stock is, is it? Most of the housing stock already exists. And so it's really a question of what can we do to retrofit this for millions of people, millions of consumers, all with a big water footprint, rather than just worry about the, the few million new houses we're building every year. Yes, uh, indeed. In, when you build a new house, you can make use of the technologies and just build them in, in there. But if you have the, the, the existing housing stock, you have to do different measures. Nevertheless, you can do things uh, there. Um, we, we all know that there is a, quite an old uh, sewer system in the UK. Um, and uh, yeah, when you renew sewer systems, you can create a, a separated sewer system for foul water and rainwater. And uh, if you connect or disconnect the, the roofs from houses, from the foul sewer to a new uh, rainwater sewer, you can, you can actually collect uh, rainwater uh, again uh, and reuse it in the houses. Is it then the plan that basically you just collect water en masse like that? Or is it envisaged that people would do more kind of micro collection, their own house, that, you know, a slightly bigger version of a water butt in the sense that you could you could get your, your bath water and your shower water and use it to water the garden? Or is it a more communal thing? You, you can do both. I uh, said in, in Flanders, it's, it's an individual system with a 5,000 litre tank, uh, a big rain barrel, so to say. Um, but I think for uh, more larger uh, situations, I think the communal or, or collective systems are much more in favor because it's easier to maintain. It's better to uh, keep the water quality good and, and it's, it's, it's better regulated if you do it in a, in a, in a communal way. If you are thinking of retrofitting, and that has to ultimately be part of the equation, doesn't it? Because of the, the huge demand that we've got in existing housing stock in terms of their water consumption. Is that economical? Is that feasible? And what sort of price tag are we looking at to try and get people with existing housing stock on this grid? Yeah, I, I think it depends on on how you look at things of course if you just look at uh, investing in the technology uh, at your home it will cost you money and uh, in in, uh, in contrast with for instance solar cells they earn you money in the end but here you have to invest in technology and you have a double system uh, which costs money but on the other hand, there are also yeah, societal benefits. You were speaking on the show on uh, about uh, combined sewer overflows. Yeah, if you can collect uh, rainwater, then uh, you can prevent uh, sewers to overflow uh, because the water is taken out of the sewer before uh, the overflow uh, occurs. Um, it also can prevent uh, damage from, from flooding, damage of, of yeah, property and, and things around. So there are more benefits for society. And if you compare that with the costs in the broader context, then it, it also might be reasonable to give subsidies for uh, these rainwater collection systems. And in that case, you create an incentive for, uh, for investing in it. Why is it not happening more already? That's the big question, though, because some countries 
are very good at this. And they're countries that have faced water stress or acute water shortages in the past. Australia is well ahead of the curve on this, but then they've had to be. Whereas, you know, is it is it just because in a country like the UK, historically, we've been so blessed with this beautiful weather and plenty of water that we haven't had to worry about it. And now with the effects of climate change and these departures from what we've regarded as normal, it's focusing people's minds. Yes, indeed. I think if, if you look at doing innovation in a water sector, it's it's a slow process. And if you see how quickly uh, the, in the recent years changes in climate are happening, we are actually a bit surprised by, by all these uh, things. And yeah, it, it, it takes time to, to, uh, to adapt. And the change in the climate is, is, is going more rapidly than the, the pace of adaptation. And I think that's where we have to accelerate. And just thinking about the home situation to finish, here in the UK, I'm tearing my hair out because I'm watching new properties going up and the the bill to put solar into them is pushed onto the homeowner if they decide they want it. Why are we not doing something whereby new developers are told you must put renewable sources of energy onto all your houses and the architects design them in so they're aesthetic and you must also include a water solution? Why is that not happening? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's a matter of time. It's also a matter of yeah having a, a very open market economy um, and, and the market uh, mechanism. Uh, yeah, I think going into a situation where you can incentivize through uh, minimum requirements for new built homes uh, would be a way uh, forward. And I think, um, as said, you can use uh, subsidies to, uh, to, to enforce uh, things or to, to stimulate things, but also put uh, regulations in place for uh, minimum requirements. But it, it takes courage. It takes political courage to do that. And, um, yeah, I think maybe the pressure needs to be even more high than it is now, even more higher than uh, we have now to, uh, to go that way. Jan, thank you very much. This is Jan Hoffman from the University of Bath. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions. It's The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Julia Ravey. So this week we're considering where our water will come from in the future and some ways to use what we do have more wisely. But does science have a solution to make more water available for us? One possibility is desalination. That's the process of stripping salt out of seawater. Chris Sansom is a solar specialist. He's at the University of Derby. And hopefully, Chris, you can explain to us What is desalination in practical terms and where does solar come into it? There are two principal ways in which we can use solar energy to desalinate seawater. The first is called CSP and the second is called RO. CSP stands for concentrating solar power uh, and that's where we use the heat of the sun in hot uh, and sunny parts of the world to basically evaporate seawater which we can then distill again to produce pure H2O. So in CSP, in concentrating solar power, you need a very hot, sunny um, environment 
So typically around the tropics of the world, in the deserts of the world, where we use the heat of the sun, uh, not electrical power now, but heat of the sun, focused using very large mirrors to evaporate seawater. What we're doing there, of course, is we're just speeding up nature because uh, seawater evaporates naturally in nature and falls again as rain on the land and in rivers. So we're speeding that process up using uh, CSP. The other way in which we can use solar energy, the power of the sun, to desalinate seawater is by using uh, solar PV, for example, uh, to produce electrical energy uh, to power what we call the RO process, the reverse osmosis process. Now, that's a very different process from evaporating seawater because that, that forces seawater through very fine membranes, a bit like forcing seawater through um, filter paper that we all remember from school. Uh, you have to force it through the membrane. It's a very high pressure process, requires a lot of electrical power to run the pumps that, that do that. Uh, but that is a perfectly feasible way of, 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 of um, producing desalinated water using solar energy. But what's the energy footprint of doing this? And how much water can you make this way? If we consider the CSP first, then it's just one of those horrible facts of life that it requires a lot of energy to evaporate water. Uh, if you imagine boiling the kettle, then you can boil a kettle, which may be one or two kilowatts. Uh, boil a kettle in maybe um, four minutes, five minutes, uh, something like that. But you're actually talking here about boiling that kettle dry. Uh, and that does take a lot of energy. That would take you about 20 minutes and would take you about one to two kilowatt hours in, in energy. So that is a lot of energy. In the RO process, it's a slightly different problem, but you will then be using a, a large amount of electrical energy uh, in order to power those huge pumps to produce enough water to make it to make it feasible. In the RO process, I think you could produce, for your kilowatt hour, if I do a similar example to the CSP, for your kilowatt hour, you would probably produce 200 litres of water rather than two litres of water. So maybe 100 times more uh, in the RO process. So it, it makes, uh, it's feasible to use the RO process to desalinate water, but it's still a lot of energy to produce drinking water. And is the water arising from both processes equivalent and adequate as a drinking water source, or is one better than the other? They're certainly equivalent in the sense that they are both um, very close to pure H2O. As to drinking a, a pure H2O, there are a number of opinions on this as to whether this is a good idea or not. My own personal view is that um, you can drink small amounts of pure H2O, but, uh, uh, but not uh, in great quantities. Uh, our bodies are not really adapted for pure H2O. We prefer minerals uh, in our water. We've, we've evolved mm. that way and our cells require that. A dash of mineral water goes a long way, doesn't it? I suppose what we should talk about is what we do with the waste, because there are always, as we keep saying on this programme, trade-offs and there are consequences. And what comes back from a desalination process is going to be some very, very salty water you've got to get rid of or a whole heap of salt you've got to get rid of, presumably. 
Yes, that is the biggest drawback. And um, there is no simple solution to that. There are things that you can do with the salt. We, you can use salt. Uh, it could be table salt. You can use salt as a preservative. Um, you can use it in various industrial chemical processes, uh, uh, part of the chemical reactions. It also makes a very good thermal store. Uh, molten salts makes a very good uh, storage media for um, uh, high temperature storage, thermal storage. Uh, but um, I have to say that in the in the large desalination plants that you find in the Middle East, for example, you will notice around the plants a lot of salts just put on the land. What we can't do now is put it back into the oceans. It can't go back into the sea. Everybody agrees that. Uh, but you will see salt just lying on the ground um, and just sitting there. And, and buried in some cases. Yeah, I, th- I think there were some catastrophic stories of this extremely hypersaline solution going back into the ocean and it was poisoning the seafloor because it was basically sticking to the seafloor because it was so heavy. You're absolutely right. And uh, that was done in the early days of desalination. And uh, I think as, as desalination has expanded in, in terms of volumes, um, we've realised that we cannot do that anymore. It's an, it's an environmental disaster, which is what we're trying to avoid. Yeah, indeed. Chris, thank you very much for bringing us up to speed. Chris Sansom there from the University of Derby. So the bottom line is that desal does work for some, it won't work for everyone, and probably it's just not sunny enough here in the UK, I'm afraid. And while we do have vast amounts of water in our surrounding seas, another water source involves looking up to the skies and the clouds that have very much filled our skies today floating by. Now, the process of artificially drawing rain out of clouds is called cloud seeding, and it's been very prominent in the news lately, especially since the Chinese government announced a very aggressive programme of artificial rainmaking to try and save their harvest this year after their country's driest summer since records began in 1961. They do also have some form in this area because they apparently fixed the weather for the Beijing Olympics using this same technique back in 2008 but they didn't do it then on anything like the scale that they are proposing now. Martin Ambaun, who is at the University of Reading, has been speaking to Will Tingle about how this process of cloud seeding works and if it could feasibly be used here in the UK. Rainfall enhancement works by injecting salts typically into clouds and what these salts do is they make uh, ice crystals form. They, they act uh, like cloud condensation nuclei. And those ice crystals, when they form, they can grow quite rapidly in a cloud. And the idea is then that those ice crystals might fall as precipitation. So these cloud seeding processes, they, they have several purposes. So it's not just increasing rainfall or increasing snow, but uh, people also try and use it to, uh, to reduce damage by hail, so hail suppression. Um, of course, hail damage is a e- high economic cost, so there's a lot of lot of riding on it if you could actually uh, prevent hail from falling. So that's another typical application of, uh, of cloud seeding. It should be said that uh, it's not very clear how efficient cloud seeding is. It's very hard to measure um, effects of cloud seeding. There are there's a lot of variability in nature um, in the amount of precipitation that you might get out of any cloud. There's no typical cloud. All clouds are very different. They're very turbulent. They're very transient. And so it's very hard to measure in such systems whether any intervention will have an effect. Which countries are currently 
using cloud seeding the most? Well, currently, um, I think most of the activity around cloud seeding is uh, currently in the Middle East, where there is a sustained effort by state actors to to fund cloud seeding operations. So uh, I'm involved with a uh, with a big uh, rainfall enhancement research program, which is funded by the United Arab Emirates. And so one of the things that our team at the University of Reading um, contributes to that research program is to examine to what extent instead of using typical cloud seeding salts, you could use electric charge to make um, to make cloud drops uh, coagulate into bigger drops and produce rain that in that way. So instead of injecting uh, salts, you really would be injecting electric charge. And our research program is, is seeing whether electric charge can help improve the efficiency of cloud seeding operations. So these salts that are involved in the rainfall enhancement process, are they in any way harmful to the environment? So uh, the salts that are typically used are uh, dry ice, frozen CO2, um, silver iodide and, and normal table salt. And all of these substances have no um, environmental or health hazard that we are aware of at all. And at the same time, uh, the amount of salts that are being being seeded into clouds uh, during any operations is, is so small that, that it, it would have uh, very little impact anyway. But the, but the salts themselves are, are, not, are not considered harmful at all. Cloud seeding is becoming more prominent in sort of the public eye. Do you think that cloud seeding as we know it right now could ever exist at a scale so large that one country cloud seeding could potentially steal water from any of its neighbouring countries? So on a smaller scale, it's possible to, to steal water, if you want to call it like that, from rain falling on a farm next door, which doesn't fall on your farm. So at, at that level, it, it, it is conceivable to think of stealing water. That is only an issue if you really can target your cloud seeding such that it will rain over one farm, but not the next farm. And that is actually, in practice, not really this, the, the current state of affairs. Now, on a larger scale, like between countries, uh, it, that's an irrelevance. It is not the case that if you make it rain over the United Arab Emirates, that that rain cannot fall over Saudi Arabia anymore. Removing a cloud or several clouds via precipitation doesn't remove clouds from another area because clouds are transient, they reform and they, they, rem- and they remove themselves, etc., so on a larger scale, it's, it's an irrelevance, really, to, to suggest things that one country can steal water from another country. And why would you say that cloud seeding isn't particularly feasible for the UK? As, as the word says, cloud seeding is a, is a matter of there's a cloud. And what you're trying to achieve with cloud seeding is to, to make the small cloud drops to change that into precipitation. So what needs to happen, you need to come up with some process that makes those small cloud drops into bigger cloud drops. However, in the United Kingdom, when there is drought, that is not due to the fact that there's clouds there that don't rain. When there is drought in the United Kingdom, that's typically due to the fact that uh, there are no clouds around. The weather systems tend to sort of um, evade the United Kingdom, they, they, they follow the jet stream typically, and the jet stream during drought periods is, is usually displaced. So those weather systems and the clouds that come with them, 
they don't come over the United Kingdom. And when there is no clouds to seed, cloud seeding is nothing, can, can achieve nothing. You can't seed clear air to produce rain. Martin Ambom from the University of Reading. So all in all, countries like the UK need to prepare very fast for the meteorological extremes that climate change is threatening to usher in upon us. In other words, we need to become much better stewards with the water that we do get, and that includes storing a lot more of it. I think that's been the main learning point this week, and also reusing it better. And, moreover, it needs to start now. And on a totally different note, join us next week as we delve deep into the human intestine to hear how the microbes that live inside us potentially hold the key to the causes and treatments of many diseases. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Julia Ravey. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.